Good morning. Good to be with you. I, um, I love having boys. I love having little boys. And uh, they're just a real joy to my life. And we had a, uh, one of those just great moments where uh, it was real early in the morning. And um, we, live, we live just over here on the uh, west side, kind of above the bench, where uh, hot air balloons often take off. And so uh, this particular morning, just a couple days ago, um, all of a sudden I hear my kids screaming, hot air balloon, and you hear the patter down the stairs, and they're out the door, and they're out in the front yard waving at the hot air balloon that was overhead. And I'm still kind of getting up, and, and I'm in bed, and, and my littlest one, Alex, comes up, and he jumps in bed, and, and we pull open our, our blinds, and, and the balloon is right up above there. And uh, he goes, Dad, look at the balloon. I go, I see it. I see it, Alex. And, Dad, it's going all the way up. I go, I know. All the way up to God. <laughs> and I go, it is, huh? He goes, yeah. And, 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 and we, we're going to get in there, and we're going to go up to God also. And he was so excited to go up. And, and, and he just started to, to have this whole picture of what was going to happen. And he said, Dad, we're going to go up to God. And, and when we get there... We're going to give God a hug. And I said, yes, we are. And he was so excited, he just lit up. He's just animated like I couldn't believe. And uh, he goes, Dad, when we get there, uh, God is going to talk to us. And I said, he is, isn't he? I said, what's he going to say, Alex? He said, he's going to say, I love you. And he goes, Dad... He's going to say that to, to me, and Dad, he, he loves you too. I went, thank you, Lord. <laughs> Pure faith. Trusting faith. A love that is secure and sure. You know, his only concern that morning was what color balloon would take him into the loving arms of God. Oh, that we would have a childlike faith. How quickly as we grow up, what a shame that for some reason we seem to lose that. All of us, we start to question and doubt and challenge. And we miss God's open arms just saying, come on here, let me embrace you. And we, like the Israelites have seasons and moments of forgotten faith, don't we? We forgot simple faith. So turn with me to Exodus 17. As we look at the work of God in the life of the Israelites in the midst of their journey, as they are learning to follow God, and as we too are learning to follow our loving Lord, and his challenge to them, and his love for them, and what he wants to teach us through this passage. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place, as the Lord had commanded. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. And so they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? 
Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff in which you struck the Nile and go. And I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called that place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled. And because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? All throughout this passage, this study of Exodus, we have seen Jesus. We have seen Jesus before He came flesh incarnate here to die for our sins. We saw him at the birth of Moses, the baby in the basket. Moses, a symbol of the one who would be Savior. We saw him at the burning bush where Moses met, I am, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We saw him in the signs and wonders leading to Jesus' miracles and wonders. We have seen him in the desert As living water, we have seen him as bread of life. The whole history of Israel's deliverance is a story of our own salvation, isn't it? And so we have seen Jesus. Paul sees Christ in this passage very clearly, and he speaks of it in Corinthians 10, and he says this, They all ate the same spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. And that rock was Christ. What is Paul getting at? How does he come to a conclusion that that rock was Christ with them in the wilderness? How does he see Christ present in the midst of the journey? that the Israelites went through. And so I want to look at this journey as God is teaching His children and as He's teaching you and me truly how to walk in faith. How do we continue to have faith when again we are in the middle of the wilderness? So this is what it starts out with. The congregation did according to the command of the Lord. And the command was, it's time to get up again, and we're moving into the wilderness. And we have seen that God is testing His people. He is helping His people see that He alone is their provision. He is doing His sanctification work, which is that that work in us that keeps helping us look more and more like the Lord. He who began the good work will continue it, right? And so He's doing that. Yeah, amen. And he's doing it according to his covenant. He continues to work in them. Why? Because he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. 
I keep my covenant. I will continue to be with you in this because I have made a covenant with you. I continue to draw you towards me because I've made a covenant with you and I can't break that covenant. And so he draws his people in. He actually says in chapter 16, come draw near to me. And it is God who led them away from this place of provision and brings them into a place where there is nothing to drink. It is God who does that. And that's part of our struggle sometimes, isn't it? Why would God do that? Why does he lead us here? And I believe because he wants us to see his glory there in the wilderness. He leads them there. He wants them to see their glory. He wants to be their provision. You know, my friend Don Pettinger said something great the other day that he said, you know, it's interesting in a football game when if, if, if the quarterback is fading back and he gets sacked, you don't see the quarterback going, woohoo, it's all you, God. I just got sacked. I'm, I'm a lost 10 yards. All to you. I just missed the field goal. All you, Lord. When do you see him pointing to God? Only when there's a touchdown. Only when there is success in their eyes. He's there in the touchdown, but he's also there when we get sacked for a 10-yard loss. All to God. He's there in all of that. It's amazing how we just want the blessing and it's amazing that we only give him the glory when there is what we consider blessing. And I think God is trying to work on us as a people to help us see him differently. He leads them to Rephidim, which means actually resting place. Some resting place. There is no water. A little hard to rest in the desert when you're dying of thirst and there is no water. And so the pattern continues of grumbling, of complaint, of attack, of blame. You see what God is doing in our midst? You see how we, in our flesh, and he reminds us of this, you see how we quickly go back to our old ways? You see how quickly we resort to the flesh and just say, I need to grumble. This is the fourth time that we see God's people beginning to grumble. Again, they point their finger at Moses. We must blame somebody for our situation. So Moses and Aaron, it's going on you. When we know that, again, their struggle is with the Lord. Does it feel like a little bit of deja vu to you? Like I've seen this before. What happened? This sounds familiar, this story of thirsty Israelites. Because it is. Chapter 15, remember? They came in and they were thirsty and the water was bitter. And they complained and they grumbled against Moses and Aaron and against God and, and they're like, give us, we are thirsty. And he does. God in his loving grace breaks forth and, and, and he throws the, the branch is thrown into the water and it becomes sweet and they are able to to drink. It's the same situation, it seems. It takes more than one reminder for us. 
And I think it's interesting that the Lord leads them to a place of thirst again. And I think it's because you and I both, we do, don't we? We, we struggle with the same issues often. We, we keep going back to there, there may be one area of sin in our life, one area of just, just we know that our flesh has a hard time with, and we tend to be stuck there. It's not like we can just go cold turkey sometimes. I wish we could. I just gave up greed yesterday. doesn't happen that easy, does it? You know, coveting. And then I walk into a friend's beautiful home. I'm like, oh, Lord, look at this, 10,000 square feet. (laughs) Think of all the ministry we could do here. (laughs) It doesn't just get given up. Lord's continually refining us, allowing us to face some of our flesh again. And this is what I think is happening. We need to learn again. We need to trust again, to obey again. And when the same issues keep coming over and over again, you know what happens? What what happens for me is my relationship with God comes into question, which is this. Truly, you know, as I try to blame others or say it's someone else's fault or just don't want to deal with it, what really comes into question is how am I doing with the Lord? I mean, plain and simple. Everything else going on around, but me and God, how are we doing? Because for some reason, I'm not resting in him. I'm not trusting in him. I'm not allowing him to do this work in in this area of my life. And so when we deal with it over and over, it does bring to question, how am I doing just with God? Not with all the ministry going on around me, not with just me and God, one-on-one, having a cup of coffee together and going, Lord... Who am I becoming? Am I becoming a man of God? And it raises those issues as we, as we wrestle with the same things because you have to go, boy, I'm still here. And why? Is it because I'm not handing it over? Is I just want to hold on to this area? What's going on with me? Because I know God wants to do a work in my life because I know he wants me to be more loving like him, more patient, gentle, kind. Same struggle It's not lack of leadership that the Israelites are seeing or or leadership that they're wanting to fix it. That's not their issue. Their issue is with God. And so it is with us. And it reveals our heart. Psalm 95 speaks to this time. And it says this, Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, this place that we're at today as you did at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested me and they tried me, even though they had seen what all that I had done. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. You know, when I read that last little part in Psalm 95.10, and they, they have not known my ways... There is a warning to us. And something that popped up to me as I was reading that, I was like, they do not know my ways. The only way we get there is that we're not listening anymore. We're not listening to God anymore. His ways are over here, and my ways are right here, and I want to do my ways. And I no longer listen to those ways. 
and my heart has become hard. And the voice of God gets fainter and fainter the more I move into my direction. And I think there's a real strong warning to us. This, this heart that, that becomes just against God, a discontent heart. You know, again, we very casually, I think, handle grumbling and complaining. And I'm serious when I say we have Christian complaining clubs, you know, we, we do. And we kind of dive in with each other and we complain with each other so that we all feel better. And, but God takes complaining very seriously, actually as, a, as one of these sins that, that really starts to permeate in such a way that it can be so destructive to our souls as it keeps going. And I would just ask all of us, and obviously I'm right in the middle of this, all of us to go, you know, let's, let's not just take it so lightly. Let's really ask God, God, help me when I start to even speak forth anything that would be just a complaining spirit. Grumbling, angry, because it starts to stick. The heart becomes hard. A bitter root that goes deep, deep, deep. And I think there is warning all throughout Scripture, because as we continue to be bitter, as we continue to complain with a a spirit of just discontent, what happens is, is we end up accusing the holy. And you and I both do that. Again, at first we'll blame some person, but in truth we accuse the holy. It leads us, this attitude keeps going to complaint instead of worship. Like Michael shared this morning, she didn't live in a, a, a time of, well, I can't see Her heart was overflowing with love for God, and she could do nothing but just write praise to God. There is a choice, by the way. We assume we're in a bad circumstance, and so it's just natural to go to complaint. What about it's just natural to go to worship? That is a choice. And God is calling us to it. And again, it's, it's a warning for us and a guarding for us. Corinthians 10 speaks on, Do not grumble as some of them did. And were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples. And they were written down, why, Corinthians 10 says, as a warning for us. That we would see the lives of those who stayed stuck in their complaining, grumbling spirit. And it ended up being a hardened heart and spiritual death. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. You know what I think that is? And this is what I love about what the Bible gives. I think it's a checkup. Hey, would you take a good look at yourselves truly? Would you see if you're starting to slip into this attitude of discontent and grumbling? It'll start to just rot away your soul and your whole joy and your life in God. It just, it just kills And so Paul and so the psalmist and everybody write, don't stay stuck in the spirit of discontent. Draw near to me. Come worship me. And God in the same area is working on us. But if we allow it to stay, that sin will again go deeper and deeper. We see in this this chapter the hostility is raised. You know, one of the differences from chapter 15 to 17, in chapter 15, they're grumbling. Here it says they're quarreling. 
This is a, I am in your face and you better fix this. I am coming after you. They demand that he provides water. They charge him with attempted homicide. And again, it is pointed out that we see the argument really is with the Lord. Why do you test the Lord? It was God who was testing them in chapter 15. Remember, I bring you out here so that I test you. I refine you. I'm working on you. I'm I'm helping you to walk. I want you to develop trust. And all of a sudden, you see the role reversal? Why do you test God? It's the same word. You now have been the one. Instead of holding on to God in this trial, in this time in the wilderness, they subpoena the Almighty. It's time for you, God, to come to court. It's time for you, God, to answer some questions. We are tired of this. And so now, God, you respond to us. They bring this accusation, and the accusation is threefold. We demand God's provision. We are thirsty. Give us water to drink. And it's not asking nicely, I'm thirsty, and could I have a drink, please? Give it to us now. This demanding spirit. They deny God's protection on their lives. You brought us here to die. All of us. Now it's our livestock and our families. We're including everything. You brought us here to die. They demand God's provision. They deny God's protection. And they doubt God's presence. Is the Lord among us or not? And here is their case against the Almighty. Did you guys notice anything in this text? Like what is missing? As you read through just these seven verses, do you see something that just isn't there? God, help us. God, we need you. God, we don't know how to make it through the day. On their knees, on their faces, before the living God. It's totally absent from this text. Hearts that have gotten hard. Hearts that have thought that our way is the way. That God is against us. That God hates us. That God is, and, and we're so sick of it that we're putting Him on trial. They're not being still and knowing that He is God. The Sabbath thing, they just forgot that. You don't see a holy expectation. Hey, Lord, man, you did all these things for us. You, you rained down manna from heaven. I can't wait to see what's next in the middle of this test. You kind of anticipate that. Wow, look at all that God has been doing along the way. Gone. Do you understand? These are human beings just like you and me. These are people trying to follow God just like you and me. So woe to us if we think we don't go there. We do. 
if they had just gotten off self, looked up a little bit, they would be reminded that none of their accusations were true. Water was just made from bitter to sweet, quail and bread from heaven, fire in the cloud. Protection, I'm sorry, do you remember that whole Red Sea incident? I know it just happened last week, but... Who do you think was your protection through that? How do you think that even happened? How do you, how do you, it's an unbelievable unbelief, isn't it? I mean, it blows our minds when we read this. How could you forget? And yet we quickly do. A spiritual amnesia that seemed to flood across the people. Psalm 106 even speaks to it. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them survived. And guess what the Israelites did? And they believed. His promises, you know what else they did? And they sang praises to God. But soon, verse 13 of Psalm 106, but soon they forgot what he had done. And they did not wait for his counsel. Oh, this lack of patience that we have, don't we? And in the desert they gave into their craving, their flesh. And in the wasteland they put God to the test. Psalm 106. Oh, how we need to remember. How we need to bring back what is truth. All the goodness of God in our lives. His his provision. His protection. His presence that would help us heal us of our complaining spirit. You know, some of you journal. I think that's a great way to remember. Oh, yeah, it was just a month ago. God gave me a job. And now I'm complaining about the job because it's not quite what I thought it would be. How about when I was begging God just for work? Did you? I'm sorry. I thought you asked for it. I got you there. How quickly we forget. And so I think it's a call to all of us to, again, to be still and say, Lord, again, and Michael mentioned, thank you, Father. Thank you for what you've given me. Instead of complaint, putting God on trial. It is truly the case against Christ. You are not the Christ I thought you were supposed to be. And so you need to answer some questions for me. So here comes the trial. Their hard hearts put God on trial. And the courtroom has set up this incredible case. And, and this wonderful theologian, Philip Ryken, he, he, he sets up and he establishes to, to show us how the case is built in this challenge against God. Rephidim was this place of testing for the people, not for God. And they come in and they're now testing God. They were tired of it. They wanted to ask questions. They charged Moses. And they say, and Moses says, why do you test God? Basically, why are you asking God to prove himself? And that's what they're doing. You need to prove it. You need to show who you are. Wait a second. It was God who was testing you. It was God who tested Abraham with his son Isaac. That's God's work, not ours. Why do you put God to the test? And so the severe judgment is coming from the people, and it comes on to Moses. They're about ready to stone me. Do you understand? That was the conventional way when a lawsuit was brought out that you would answer 
the judgment. You would take a person out and stone them to death. That was the outcome. God says, bring the elders. Pass forth through the people. The elders were always brought in for cases of judgment in dealing with issues that needed to have some conflict resolution. Here come the elders to be in the middle of this. The words Meribah and Massah actually are legal terms. Massah means to test. Meribah means to strive or argue or to dispute like you would see a lawyer in a court case. This is the way it is. Prove yourself. The people want to hold God responsible. We are the judge. You are in the dock. Answer our questions, God. We're tired of this. C.S. Lewis says, The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches the judge. However, for the modern man, the roles are reversed. The modern man is now judge, and God is in the dock. And the modern man is quite a kindly judge if, if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, <clears throat> and disease. He will be ready to listen to it. And the trial may even end up in God's acquittal. But the important thing for us to see is that man is on the bench, and God is in the dock, the one being accused. And all of scriptures speak to this. Who in the world do we think we are? Who do you think you are to challenge the creator of the universe? Isn't it amazing how we've gotten so comfortable with the Almighty. Isn't it amazing how he's sort of become our chum? I'm sorry, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? And we think we can put God on trial. God, this isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? These people shouldn't suffer. Who do you think you are? I sat here Friday night with the most beautiful people, truly. I just, as far as joy of the Lord, I think I've seen in a, in a while, as far as a group. It was just, it, it, it was just, it was children of the nations, and they came, they came from Malawi, Africa. And you know what? The atrocities that have happened to these children are. You can't even mention them. They're so despicable. And here they sang about the glory of God, about God's healing upon them, with smiles that I never see. I mean, just these just beautiful, glowing. I, 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 I wept the whole time because it was just like, because you know what I was doing? I'm like sitting at my table in the back corner over here, and I'm like, Lord... These beautiful children, why would you let this happen to them? And I'm starting to challenge God in these things. And, and I think it was an honest wrestling. 
But they weren't doing that because they had allowed God to work in their lives. And they were actually singing to God about his work in their lives. And I'm back there going, dang it, God! And, and I missed the whole big picture. Don't get confused between an honest wrestling with the Lord or questions, okay? Hey, Lord, I don't understand this. Hey, Lord, help me. Hey, Lord, I'm struggling. And sometimes even angry at God. God, man! Versus, prove it. You're the one I'm testing now. There's a difference, okay? Honest wrestle is, Job brings it to God. We, that's the place where we should lay that. But now they're saying, prove it. Show. Show yourself. Satan does the same thing to Jesus, doesn't he? Takes him out, takes him up to a high point. Hey, throw yourself off. Scriptures say the angels will catch you. Jesus doesn't respond. Could have he passed the test? You bet. Because he's God. But he doesn't do anything. He says, he says this. The scripture also say, don't put the Lord God to your test. Jesus speaks to that about our hearts. Don't put them to the test. It is not our place to bring God on trial. As though we think what is most important is what we think of God. Do you see that? Our view of God. We better have it all together. He better meet our needs and what we think of Him. And so the switch is, Oh God, what do you think of me? Am I pleasing to you, Father? Lord, am I a living sacrifice to you? And so they kick against God and they put him on trial and they test him. The accusation is laid out and God actually hears the accusation. They're trying to play judge, but now God is stepping in. And I get real excited at this point. Yeah, God. It's time for you to be judge upon these ungrateful, complaining, sinning Israelites. Step in, God. Don't take this. And it looks like he will. Moses, go grab the staff. That staff that you struck the Nile with in judgment. Bring that staff. And I'm going to have you use it in judgment. I'm like, yes, God. It's time. These guys need to be nuked. (laughs) They do. You just feel like, my goodness. It's time for God to step in and, and do it, Lord. We, we have, we have this, this desire to protect God here. Like, like when Aslan is on the stone table and we're going, fight back! And he takes it. Take the staff. Strike the rock. The verdict is about to come down. The outcome of this is about to play out. And so he strikes the rock. And the rock cracks open. And a trickle of water flows out? No. Like a flood that creates a river, water pours forth. And in this deluge, it protects Moses. 
And in this outpouring, he delivers his beloved children. That's the verdict. Huh? Truly, huh? What kind of judgment is this, God? What is this that you are doing? It's a judgment that shows God full of grace. It's a judgment that shows that he alone is our salvation. And you go, and Paul saw Christ in the rock. The truth that we know is that the wages of sin for each and every one of us is death. That should be the outcome. But not in God's economy. God takes Moses and his elders to the rock at Horeb, that place where Moses first saw God in the burning bush. And he says, It is here that I will stand before you upon the rock. The Lord is the rock. Psalm 95, He is the rock of salvation. And now, Moses, I want you to take your staff of judgment and I want you to strike the rock. What did Paul say? And I want you to strike me. I will take the judgment upon myself. I, Aslan, will take the wounds. I will take the judgment that belongs upon these people and it will come upon me. And so Jesus was falsely accused. Pontius Pilate could find nothing wrong with him. Put him on the cross. And so he was struck in place of you and me. And Christ was the rock. And the water poured out. What did it prove? It flooded upon the accusations and flooded over them. Filled their pots with truth. It responded to all their doubts and their fears. God submitted to judgment so that they might live. This has been God's way of salvation all the way through. I am a holy God. There has to be a way of salvation for my people. And I will take that upon me. Christ was the rock because it flowed with the water of life. By his wounds we are healed. And so, for all of us, when we might have a case against Christ where we think we got to challenge and where we go, Lord, you're just not doing what I I want you to do. And Lord, you're not the God <clears throat> that I thought you were going to be, and, and, and I blame you. I really think we need to fall upon our faces and ask for forgiveness. Especially in this area of this, this content, complaining spirit. God, help us. May we receive, as the water comes, may we just drink it in. And go, you really are who you say you are. You are my life. You are my provision. May our heart turn to praise and thankfulness. And might we somehow return to a simple faith 
I know I'm going up in the balloon. I know I'm going into the loving arms of God. I know he's going to tell me one thing, that he loves me. He is our provision. He is our protection. He is present. And you are his beloved children. Amen.